It's the Farmer to Farmer podcast, episode 73, and this is your host, Chris Blanchard. Allie and Dan Haney own Shenandoah Seasonal, two and a half acres of vegetables and 400 laying hens in Virginia's Shenandoah Valley. Now in their fifth year of running the farm, Allie and Dan sell their produce through three farmers markets and a modest CSA program. Allie and Dan share their story from their work as social workers in Cambodia to their struggles finding suitable land after moving back to Virginia. We dig into their salad production system, how they developed an egg production system that really works, how Dan and Allie have made their investment decisions as the farm's internal economics have evolved, and the consequences of cutting off your dreadlocks. Really enjoyed my conversation with Dan and Allie. I think you're going to get a lot out of it too. So here we go. Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, founded by organic crop growing professionals committed to meeting the need for high quality compost and compost space living soil mixes for certified organic plant production. VermontCompost.com. Farmer to Farmer podcast is brought to you by Audible. Discover the world of audiobooks and absorb yourself in the latest in business management texts, farming essays, or if you've got a lot of tractor work to do, all three volumes of The Lord of the Rings. Get a free audiobook download and a 30-day free trial at farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash audible. Allie and Dan Haney, welcome to the Farmer to Farmer podcast. Thank you, Chris. Thank you. So glad that you guys join us today. How's the weather out there in Virginia? It is going to approach 90 degrees today, and it's very humid. Lots of sunshine. That's what it's supposed to be in Virginia at this time of year, right? Yeah. I saw on Facebook that you guys are just starting to get into your tomato harvest. I did a field walk earlier this morning, and there are some reds and some sun golds approaching, so we're really excited. Allie, I thought it would be great to start off by having you tell us a little bit about Shenandoah Seasonal, where you guys are located, what you're doing, how much of it you're doing. We're located in the northern Shenandoah Valley, which is... Uh, in Virginia, and we're about 70 miles east of Washington, D.C. Um, our farm is two and a half acres of produce, and we also have a flock of 400 pasture-raised chickens that run on about another half acre of our property. Uh, we are in our fifth season, and we operate on leased land and have all four years of our operation. Two and a half acres of produce and 400 chickens how does that compare, like in terms of workload and income? Is 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 that approximately equal, or is that a lot more vegetables than it is chicken? Since you can't really do, you know, chickens and broccoli aren't aren't equivalents. Right. It's it's varied across our four years of operation. Um, our flock of chickens ranges between three and six hundred. This year we have four hundred. Uh, that gives us about one hundred fifty dozen eggs per week, and up until this year, our egg, egg production was about half of our income. It was excellent cash flow for us as we uh, were both not trained vegetable growers. So as we've gone through the learning curve of growing vegetables, having the chickens and the cash flow from the eggs has really helped get us through that learning curve. We're at the point now, really exciting time for us where we our seeing systems come into place. We finally have most of the equipment that we need to make our business profitable. And we also have two farm hands who are amazing, two women who are helping us out. Um, this is really the first time we've had, we had some interns last year, but having hourly folks help us out is monumental for us. It gives us the capacity to be creative, to think, to 
establish better systems instead of just reacting to all the crazy things happening on the farm. Why do you feel like hourly employees help you to 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 not be just reactionary to things on the farm, but actually to to do the planning and and really make things work as opposed to having interns? Well, before when we had interns, we were focusing very heavily on educating and kind of explaining where and how we've arrived to our processes on the farm, which it really was mentally taxing day in, day out, be that kind of coach and cheerleader all in one, where now when we take the focus of the hourly employees, we we aren't necessarily explaining things as if they are going to be owning or managing their own farm one day. So uh, we, I think we take less time explaining the fundamental nature of what tasks we're doing. We more so we're we're stating what we're doing and, and we're delegating things. Whereas before we would as a group kind of setting, we would do the tasks together and now we're freeing up our times by saying, employee, we need you to go collect the the eggs in the morning and put the chicken feed out and rotate the pasture where we are focusing on other tasks at that time. I remember when on my farm, we went away from having interns and, and even calling anybody on the farm, an intern and an apprentice. And just, it clarified the relationship so much because it was like, I give you money and you do work. And, and everything else then becomes cream. And we had a lot of cream at my farm, but it was, it, it really did just, it, it made the relationship so much clearer and therefore made the work so much clearer. Exactly. Yeah. And we, we are not, in a, what we recognize is we're not in a capacity right now to be teachers. We have a lot to learn and we, but more than that, it's that we need the time to do other things. I think Dan would agree that both of us one day would love to have apprentices or interns again and be that in that, um, you know, in that type of role. But right now, it's just not the sustainable thing for our business when we're in this growing phase and working towards profitability. So you've been in business for five years. This is your fifth season on the farm. You're doing two and a half acres of produce, 400 chickens. You're kind of hitting your stride. Is is this a scale that you guys are have been at for a while and are expecting to be at for a while? Or is this someplace that's that's on the on the road here to something that's bigger? Scaling is something that's really important to us right now. And we we're still figuring that out. We've been in flux a bit uh, bigger and smaller. Um, we started out, what, Dan, with about an acre and a half? We started out leasing a property that already had about an acre of crops in production. And when we tapped in to that farm, we tried to take on an acre, but it turned out to be that we had a quarter of an acre in production at one time as a result that there was one person farming it that had no experience with vegetables. So at that time, it was a quarter of an acre in production at any given time, and we had started with 200 laying hens 
Yeah, that's that's where we started. And then have kind of scaled up since then. So you actually started on a different piece of land than where you are now? Yes, we originally started on a one-acre plot that was developed by another sustainable vegetable farmer. And we really lucked out. It was a phenomenal opportunity for us. And we quickly jumped into vegetables without a lot of experience. I grew up on a, a, a small homestead of a farm where my parents always had some livestock from cows, pigs, goats, sheep, chickens, uh, to many vegetables uh, for the family. But when jumping into a professional career in growing vegetables, that was a completely different nature to where none of the, the tools and the techniques that my parents employed that they, they didn't follow suit for starting a career in vegetables. Uh, for example, a bushel of green beans does not go very far at a farmer's market. You, you need a lot of green beans. You need a lot to bring to the table. And when we first started, we were very heavy on the eggs, but not so heavy on the produce because we simply didn't have the capacity to grow it with one person, uh, and more specifically because we didn't have the experience to to bring it to the market. We, we really didn't have much of anything. We like to say that we um, have really made something out of nothing. We... we Dan had some training um, as a livestock apprentice, and my first time even planting a seed was the year before we started our farm. Um, I fell in love with it, which is why we're doing it today. But just to to show you, really, we we didn't have experience. Wow, I mean that that really, that really <laughs> is diving right in. You know, for, for speaking from somebody who spent ten years, you know, trying to get ready to farm, and you know, of course, still didn't quite feel ready uh, when I when I actually went out on my own. But that's a really a zero to sixty kind of a progression. One hundred percent, that's what it was. And looking back at it, like, wow, what? Who did we think we were? But that is, I think, a testament to Dan and my personality, also um, that we take on some pretty serious challenges and um, really go fast and furious. Yeah, that seems really apparent from what I read about you on on your website and on Facebook that that you guys don't shy away from challenges. And it seems like your experience prior to coming to Shenandoah Seasonal was not a traditional path. Not in the least bit. We... Uh, before we became farmers, we worked in Cambodia. We worked at a, a small home and learning center for children in Cambodia called Aziza's Place. And there, um, our, we spent about two and a half years total in Cambodia. And our role there intensified over time and really what, you know, as we reflect on our time in Cambodia, what we found is that it really paved the way for everything we're doing today um, and was such an important part and foundation of our farm, even though it doesn't, it may not, the, the correlation, you may not see that to begin with, but when you dig a, a bit deeper, I think that really comes out. 
So tell me about the work that you guys were doing in Cambodia. I'll, I'll speak to that because we were really there because of me. Um, when we graduated from, Dan and I met at James Madison University, which is also here in the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia. Uh, we graduated in 2007 and I was going into the Peace Corps. So in January 2008, I was supposed to go down to South America. Um, but we learned about a volunteer opportunity through a family friend out of Visa's place. And Dan and I just started dating in May 2007 when we graduated. And we got pretty serious that summer. And he decided that he would come with me. My, I was just going to volunteer in Cambodia for a little while. He ended up meeting me over there. And we started out as volunteers. And Aziza's place um, is a home for impoverished children. So they came from a municipal dump site where their families would, they really lived in shanty houses and would pick through trash for recyclables, sometimes making 25 cents a day. Um, zero access to health care, um, basic necessities, food, health care, water, even, I mean, even shelter was really not, um, not available to them. So at Aziza's place, they would live at the center six days a week. They would go to public school and then receive supplemental programming and enrichment programs. Um, and our role, I worked at Aziza's place and Dan did some other volunteer work while he was there. But um, I did some teaching and some development work, worked really closely with the kids and their families. And then we had the opportunity to uh, go back to help the current director there just create some more infrastructure, um, strategic planning. What ended up happening is uh, Dan went back to, uh, to take on this role, and I was going to meet him there. And the, uh, the current manager of the school, who was an American, um, died unexpectedly. And so what happened is Dan really had to take on the full responsibility of the school. And I joined him three months later and it really fell into our lap, the running the whole school. Um, our goal there was to transition to Cambodian leadership. We never wanted to stay in Cambodia, um, you know, for, for a long time. But we, we were able to do that. We, uh, Dan worked on finances. I worked on programming. We built a community development program. We really created a strong mission and vision for the school and opened and created a community development program. So a long story short is that Dan and I worked very closely together running a nonprofit, which is very similar to running a business. So these are some of the, the building blocks that we found that we work excellently together. We'd love to work together. And I'll kind of let Dan take it from there, how we transition from Cambodia to farming in Virginia. Yeah, because that does seem like quite the transition, especially because you weren't working in agriculture in Cambodia. Yeah, really for, for me and inevitably for us in the end, um, in Cambodia, there is hardly any seasonal change. It's located in the tropics. It's right next to Vietnam. And so it's got this wet season and a dry season. And 
it's constantly 100 degrees and 90 degrees of humidity or it's 85 degrees and a little bit lower humidity. But there was no sense of time and no seasonal change. And coming from the Shenandoah Valley, where there's four seasons, you really miss home. And after about a year to a year and a half of being in Cambodia, I started to daydream about what my ideal life would be. And I, again, I grew up on a farm and I was used to working hard physically and doing some of those things associated with farming. So my vision turned into, I, I need to be working outside where there's four seasons and of course doing my own thing with my wife because we've, we've spent so much time working together that we quickly realized we should just continue this working together. So naturally it came to us thinking of crossing social work with agriculture and maybe bringing some of our skill sets back from Cambodia to Virginia or West Virginia to help out some impoverished communities in the Appalachia to some other kind of social work that we could scheme up and mix with agriculture. And then I think that quickly faded away after spending some more time in Cambodia. And um, we, we realized that we really needed to focus on ourselves and, and, and work for ourselves and not probably go or continue in the social services industry. It really uh, wore us out. And so I, when we came back, I had been communicating with my parents and it seemed natural that we would probably start farming on their property since they own some land and they are not full-time farmers. They're more hobby farmers. So I thought that I could use their tools and some of their land to get started. And when my parents heard that, they were not very receptive and they said that I needed to get some experience before we started a farm together as a family. And so I decided to get an apprenticeship at a local sustainable livestock farm. And I was really trying to hone in on some skill sets that I was already familiar with, but to make it profitable as opposed to being a homesteader for uh, in which you're providing for yourself to you're trying to make money. There's a separation from my family that can Dan and Allie make this happen. And so I think they were really trying to be a little protective of us. Uh, there's a lot of people in our area in this agricultural community do not have the most profitable farming techniques. There's a lot of monocropping and cattle and these cultural types of farming that uh, are really, it seems to be for uh, land use and tax deductions in the end. And my parents both understood how, how everything works, but they weren't really, they didn't understand 
how big farmers markets in this region were and how much they're growing. And so after about nine months of going through this apprenticeship with three months remaining, I decided to again approach my parents and start talking about a business plan, in which case they both unanimously said that we cannot start farming on their property with their their help, essentially. So it really started with Allie taking out a lease on a piece of land that I had never seen before, and she just kind of went with it. She said, well, you know, we're not going to give up on Dan's dreams, and I'm going to go find a piece of land on Craigslist, and we're going to get started from there. We're not going to have livestock and we're, we're going to grow vegetables and we can afford some seeds. You know, I'm, I'm struck, Dan, by how much this differs from the, the really rosy story, I think, that's oftentimes presented of, of the prodigal son coming back to the farm and, and, and being able to, to lean on parental support to, to get something up and going. That must have been a really, I mean, not to get too personal, but that must have been really hard. Yeah, it definitely offers its uh, set of challenges, and it still does to this day, honestly. I mean, we're seven miles away from their property, from my parents' farm, and uh, it, it was something that was shocking at first, and then we quickly realized, well, if they don't want it, then it's not, it's not going to work. So we, we quickly jumped into this one property, we farmed it for a year, and then the landlord had a little bit of an issue with our chickens being on her property. She said that there were insurance issues <clears throat> for the chickens and that we needed to move them. And instead of giving up and selling our chickens, I forced my way onto my family's land. Without their permission, I just said, I'm your son. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take it over. I'm going to do what I want and you're going to have to deal with it. And so we slowly incorporated our chickens onto their property, and we were doing this commute. We were farming on two separate lands uh, and trying to reintroduce our, you know, this presence to my parents to say, we are going to farm whether you want us to or not. And it really was still met by some resistance when we started farming there, just having the chickens. And then we decided since we're there, we're really, we're going to put some crops in the ground, whether they like it or not. We just were over there for half the day. We're on the other farm for half the day. It seems to make sense. And then after finishing another, that, that season, that second season, or that they're, they all kind of blend together, we decided that maybe it was not the best thing that, that we're farming on my parents' land. But I do know, I do know that we, we kept trying. We really wanted this to work. Dan loves the farm he grew up on. It just didn't. And so we, we had to move forward. So we're always keeping our ear to the ground trying to find people who want farmers, sustainable farmers, organic farmers, 
young farmers, small farmers on their property. There's so much land and, and there's people that want to utilize it, but finding these partnerships is really difficult. A lot of times it's okay. Yeah. You can farm on my property, but you have to mow on my grass and do all these things and take care of the property. And as you know, Chris, it's just not possible to take care of someone else's property and have a profitable farm. And, well, and especially to take care of somebody else's property the way that somebody else probably wants it taken care of, exactly. you know, <laughs> I mean, when you're in business for yourself, sometimes the lawn doesn't get mowed. Uh, yeah. Our, I mean, it's, it's, it, that was one of our, our challenges. So we met with a lot of people and, um, we ended up stumbling on the place where we live currently. Um, the property is. 76 acres and it's in a trust and we heard the, we knew the current um, or the tenant who had lived here for six years. I ended up just seeing him in downtown Winchester at a restaurant. And I was like, Oh, how's it going at, at Crossstone? Crossstone is what this farm is called or this property is called. And he's like, well, I'm moving in October. And I'm like, well, that's interesting because every time you drive by, Dan says, wow, that would be a really great place to farm. He gave me the phone number of the, land, the landlord and I spoke with them and they were really receptive to having us lease three acres or so. And so we, we packed up the chickens yet again and our farm and moved about three miles down the road to where we are now. Well-traveled chickens. <laughs> so our chicken hutch is quite a sight to see. I hope, I, I think I have pictures on my Instagram or Facebook or our website, but it is a, um, oh my gosh, Dan, what is it? What we have for our chicken, mobile chicken hutch is it's a, tractor trailer body yes. on top of a hay wagon frame. And so it's, it's a very slow moving uh, vehicle going down the road. <laughs> and, and sometimes you know, we're, we're pulling it with a tractor and it's going that slow and it'll get a flat tire because it weighs so much and it's just really suited for a hay wagon. And so I, I wouldn't recommend traveling, you know, state to state, but for going three to 20 miles, it, it seems to be okay on back roads, but it, it definitely is a challenge to, to travel down the road with that thing. But on a farm, it's very functional. Um, and it, it holds a lot of chickens. It does. This, this represents one of the things that, I think is a huge takeaway from our experience in Cambodia, which is being resourceful. Um, in Cambodia, they recycle everything. You don't throw away a coffee pot. You fix it. You don't, you know, you really repurpose everything. And that has been so great for our farm in taking a look at a pile of scraps or whatever and figuring out what we can create or make out of it. I mean, you should see our pack station right now. It's, it's, I mean, it's tarps, but it works great. So tell me, I, I, I'd like to dig in just a little bit more with the, with the chicken side of your operation. Cause 
we had 200 laying hens at one point at Rock Spring Farm. Um, and it was our second or third year of production. And, and I mean, it was, it was almost all consuming to manage that many eggs and, and that many chickens. So how are you guys doing your chicken production? I mean, you're, you're, you know, sustainable, organic, hippie farmer type. So I assume you've got them out on pasture. Of course. Of course. Yep. And, and you've got this, you've got this wagon monstrosity that you're moving around. Um, how does, how does that whole system fit together? Well, the, the system for us is that we pasture raise our chickens. So we, we feed them chicken feed, of course, because we, for production, for high yields to make us profitable, we do incorporate a non-GMO, non-pesticide and herbicide feed that's tested and verified because we, we like to incorporate this into our vegetable production as well. I think they, they kind of go hand in hand in the aspect that we are cutting down on the cost of our chickens eating feed by pasture raising them. So I would like to think that sometimes 50 to 70% of their diet comes from the land. And then we ration out this feed to really bulk up their carbs so that they, they lay a lot of eggs day in, day out. But what's really important that adds value to our farm as well is that we are adding fertility to this really clay-based soil. So it's, it's not the, not the, the best soil around. It, it takes a couple of years for us to really see improvements upon the soil. So we rotate the chickens on a wet week. We rotate them twice in one week to really keep the eggs clean and manageable. And I think that is something at first that we didn't recognize because we, we had a lot of time and a strong focus on the chickens. And we quickly learned that if we were going to keep doing the chickens, we had to make the whole system from collecting eggs to washing their eggs to rotating them on pasture. We had to make that streamlined. And so part of it is making sure your chicken hutch is super clean so that your eggs are super clean so you don't spend all day and all night washing them. What I will say about the chickens, because it's not my, not my favorite thing um, <laughs> to do. I really love growing produce and chicken management of the chickens has been a constant struggle for me. Um, but it really now, season five, I'm seeing the streamline um, with pasture rotation, clean eggs, um, even egg washing. Dan and I are so fast at egg washing now. It's, it's really, it's unreal. Um, but we have um, someone helping us feed the chickens four times a week because uh, we, we feed them twice a day. They need new water twice a day. So having someone help do that, this is the first year that we, we've had that. And we're really feeling the pressure um, ease off from chicken management, which was really high before, and keeping us from planting or working in the field. But it was also at that time sometimes more profitable. So that's where we 
you know, we felt that it, it worked so well for our business. Further, the cross-marketing at farmer's markets is excellent. Excellent. Um, right. so they, people love our eggs and then we, we work to turn them into also eating our vegetables or vice versa. So when you've got the chickens out on pasture, you're using, an, it, it looks like an electro net fencing for them. So, so like an, an electric netting to keep them in. Yeah. We, for, for our farm, we also have somebody that co-leases the land who has about 40 head of cattle. And for us, when we first got here, there was no fence to separate the cattle from our vegetable garden. So we quickly developed this electric fence system to keep the cows out, which is essentially five strands of the polytape for cattle that is wrapped around tomato trellising stakes. And so for about four acres, we have fenced in of this electric net that is then hooked up to a, an electric charger that charges the fence. And from there, right around the perimeter of our garden, we have access to tap into this electricity. So we hook up the poly net to that in a kind of a rectangular shape. And we have four sets of nets. Two sets of nets are in use at any given time. And we we mow a little bit of grass with a string trimmer in advance if the weeds are that tall or bad. And then we we put the fence the other two fences in front of where we're going to move to. We pull the hay wagon with a truck, four-wheel drive, ahead to the new pasture. When we feed the chickens, they all kind of flock over to the new pasture. And then we close the fence and get it ready for the next rotation. So you've got the cows are mowing ahead of the ahead of the chickens so that you're not moving them into like two-foot-tall pasture grasses. Yeah, the, the pasture is generally pretty low in comparison to if it was to just grow however it wanted. Now, there's not the best management practices with the cattle that are on this property. So there are a lot of weeds, uh, lots of thistle, and that's primarily what we string trim down. And uh, it helps a lot for the chickens to see where they're going. And we also have livestock guardian dogs. So if there's a lot of thistles, if there's a lot of furs, these kind of pest weeds, we try and remove them from the pasture, uh, not only for the short time gain, but for the future, we are kind of hindering the spread of these weeds as we go through. The chickens really mow them down afterwards, and uh, I think it's a good process, especially as we're going around the perimeter of our vegetable garden, we're saying, okay, that's where we're going to put some crops next year because we know we've enhanced the soil fertility there. So it is part of your vegetable rotation then to be to be putting the the chickens on a piece of ground and then taking that essentially out of pasture production, putting it into vegetable production. Yeah, that, that's the plan. And we, we have done that already. We, we started out doing that from the very beginning, but we quickly thought about how we need some time. We need 
about six months in between when the chickens were there and when we put crops, just so we don't cross-contaminate the crops. We don't add any extra bacterias from the livestock that, you know, would make somebody sick if they were to consume some spinach from that spot. Um, so then when you guys are doing the, the egg collection, you said that that's something that's gotten a lot faster in the last couple of years. What's what's changed with that? I think it's just practice. Dan, I heard Dan the other day at market. Some, what did someone say, Dan? Someone said, how do you know they're not cracked? And Dan's like, I've been washing eggs for four years. I just know. <laughs> and it's kind of true. You, yeah. you, you develop a method of washing really fast, checking for cracks. And and packaging so that you get a beautiful looking dozen of eggs. Um, it's really just we haven't had you know we've had some people help us in the past with washing eggs and sometimes our our current employees do help but for the most part as much as you know we we don't really want to it is uh, Dan and my responsibility because we have gotten so fast at it. Yeah, you get trapped in being the people that are the best at it. Right. So, so when you're when you're washing the eggs, tell me about the setup that you got for that because it doesn't sound like you're doing that with a machine. No, um, egg washing machines are quite expensive. They can be, I've heard, up to ten thousand um, dollars. We, I think, our first year, we purchased a utility sink, and we've been washing them in this utility sink um, with warm water. And that's it. And just a scrub brush or something to get the to get the any manure off. Yes, yes. If there is, okay. some, we'll use a scrub brush. Yeah. And then, are you candling the eggs as well, or is it just a just a washing process? Just a washing process. Okay. And and then, where's where is that located? Is that separate from your vegetable washing area? We cycle it. We the sink is mobile and so um we it is under the same um it is under our packing station but we move it in and out depending on what's going on there and we we never have the facility set up at the same time that we do our vegetables so we we generally when we wash our eggs it's always the night before we have some market so the night before the CSA, we wash 40 dozen eggs. Or the night before market, we wash 100 dozen eggs. And then we, we pack everything up. Like Ali said, it's a mobile sink. So we take the sink out, and then we disinfect the concrete floor, the whole nine yards, and then start prepping everything for the vegetable production for the next day, the next morning. And then at our markets, we are we are selling our eggs for six dollars and twenty five cents per dozen. And a little um, marketing trick that we've used from from day one is that if you return your carton, we discount twenty five cents. So for the most part, our eggs end up going for about six dollars, depending on if we have if our loyal customer or not. Um, and we're pretty specific about the type of marketing we use. We get we have really nice, um, like newspaper brown egg cartons with a label that uh, a graphic designer friend of mine created. So we spend money on these cartons. They end up being about forty cents per carton, but it's they look really clean and nice every dozen. 
well, and it, and I think it it reinforces that brand too. When people take it home from market, I was always surprised how few people knew that they were buying produce from us. You know, it was like they get it, they get it home, and they come back again, and they they weren't making those connections. And I think that having that good labeling really helps when somebody takes it out of the fridge and they go, oh yeah, Shenandoah seasonal. I remember those guys. They're on the corner of the third aisle at farmer's market. Exactly. You know, that's where I want to go. Or they'll say, um, they just call us Shenandoah. Are you Shenandoah? So the, the funniest thing is the time Dan, he had dreadlocks, I think two last season and a huge beard and he cut his hair off and everyone's like, you know, where's the guy? That's always right. here. <laughs> it's like, oh, it's me. And they're like, no, no, really, where is he? This is why I recommend a hat for the defining feature because it's, you know it's a little easier to put back on than the dreadlocks. <laughs> so the eggs and the vegetables, and you're marketing those through a CSA and at farmers markets. How many markets a week are you doing? Well, we do three farmers markets that are located right around the DC area, and then we have our CSA outlet, which is. We have 65 members in total for the CSA, and we also we have two CSA pickup spots. So we have one in our local downtown area that we, we drive 10 minutes, we set it up in the downtown shopping center, and we, ha- we offer our CSA pickup, and then we have a little farmer's market display for the community as well. And so we, we pick up a little bit of money there on the side for just doing a CSA pickup, and then we do an on-farm CSA pickup as well. So we have two CSA pickup locations, and then for we do a one wholesale currently. We've done a few throughout the years for wholesaling to different restaurants or grocers, but there's one that we've found that's really consistent with purchasing our produce to pur- purchasing our eggs. And they are a very high-end French restaurant, and they're our neighbors, so it really isn't far to make that delivery. And we're fetching phenomenal prices for what they want, although we're changing some of our production to meet some of their needs because with high-end French dining, they want these really tiny radishes that are no bigger than the size of your your fingernail to these baby beets with very superb greens. And we make sure everything is spot on for them. So when we're harvesting and when we're packaging, it does cost us a little bit more time and effort to make sure that, that they're getting the product that they need. But we're also getting sometimes up to three or four times the amount per unit by wholesaling to them. So we're pretty big fans of them for our wholesale outlet. But And we realize that it's a really unique situation that we're in with them. So we've continued that throughout the years. And then the only other marketing outlet that we have is we do a spring plant sale where we do all kinds of vegetable starts to herbs, and then we do another plant sale in the fall. Are you guys doing four-season production? We are. We we did take um, 
one winter off when we were moving to this current property. But so we started in 2012 and it was the winter of the next winter where um, I, I started reading um, Elliot Coleman, the new organic gardener book, and he has a winter farming book. And it, it was interesting how Dan started talking about high tunnel and season extension and four season growing just as I was reading that. And we both came together and said, yeah, we have to do this. this we can do it. Um, you know, we weren't making a lot of money farming and really wanted it, wanted to have income from it and also um, get edge into markets. Uh, we we knew that that would definitely give us a leg up in getting into some better farmers markets as well. So we purchased a uh, 15 by 96 high tunnel and we had a really successful first growing season in there. We were able to go to market every week, right, Dan? And I think we also had some stew hens that season, that first season. Yeah, we we surprisingly lucked out that season. And then eggs as well in the winter time, right? That specific winter that we introduced the first high tunnel, we we had eggs for the very beginning of the winter, and then our chickens really dropped off because they were at that point two and a half years of age, and so to get some of our money back out of that investment, we turned the chickens, the laying hens, into stew hens, and found that there is a great market for stew hens at the market since nobody else was doing that at the time. So we had our vegetables in production, we had the eggs to start with, and then we had the stew hens. And we just, like the nature of our farm has been, we were making something out of nothing. And uh, it really got us through that winter. And then we lost the the processor, um, they, it changed hands. So we, the next season, we're not able, I think we weren't able to do that. And what we ended up deciding is that we needed a break in the winter. And the past two seasons, we have sold our chickens to basically the homesteaders. We put them on Craigslist. People will come and buy 25 or 10 at a time. So that we, I think last winter, we, from December probably from December till until March, we did not have chickens. And then we purchased in a new flock just to give ourselves a bit of a break. Do you guys buy your chickens in as day old chicks or are you buying ready to lay pullets? Ready to lay pullets. Is that just something you're getting from a, a, a local neighboring farm or is there, is there more of a regional resource to get those? I know you don't get them through the mail like you do with the baby chicks. The farmer that I apprenticed under, we, we use the same breeder that he gets his, chickens from his pullets and it's a hatchery in West Virginia and it's this he's got a, a really large operation but it's this kind of old school farmer that doesn't have a website his business isn't in the yellow pages you have to somehow get his phone number from somebody you know to to order these chickens and you order them six months in advance and he schedules a date and uh, two weeks before he comes, he gives you a phone call and says, I'm going to, I'm going to verify that I'm dropping off 400 chickens in two weeks. Um, and we have come across many people who, who want to get a hold of 
somebody that produces these pullets because it's something in this area that uh, other farmers don't really raise chickens for other farmers. And so I think his hatchery is uh, pretty unusual for that. That's an incredible resource to have for your business to be able to to get those ready to lay pullets because, I mean, raising those chicks from, you know, from day old. So that's a lot of work and, and completely separate set of, of equipment and processes that you need to make that happen. Exactly. We, we realized that that was just not in our capacity with just two of us um, to, to purchase that equipment. And then the feed cost, um, this just makes way more sense for our business model. So now it's time for us to take a break, get a word from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with Allie and Dan Haney from Shenandoah Seasonal. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is made possible with the generous support of Vermont Compost Company, makers of Fort V and Fort Light potting mixes. Vermont Compost potting soils are a really special product. I used Vermont Compost Fort V as a blocking mix and potting soil for over 12 years on my farm, and we grew great transplants with it. And I mean really great transplants, year after year. At a time in the organic movement when we're seeing more and more companies jumping on the bandwagon, Vermont Compost is a reminder of the art and the craft of making potting soil. They mix an incredible diversity of ingredients into the compost that forms the basis of their potting soil, incorporating many kinds of manures along with plant materials and food wastes to foster structure and aeration in the compost. I love that they're Fort V-Mix even has chips of ocean blue granite in it and kelp for a little smell of the ocean. One thing I've always appreciated about Vermont Compost is their ability to put out a consistent product year after year. And in something that's subject to as many variables as market farming, it's nice to have something that you can count on. VermontCompost.com. The Farmer to Farmer podcast is sponsored by Audible, where you can get a free audiobook download when you sign up for a free 30-day trial at farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash audible. If you're listening here, you already understand the power of the spoken word and how fantastic it is to be able to learn and listen to stories while you're getting something else done. It's a way of learning that no other medium offers. And it's so easy to tap into spoken word audio now that you probably carry an iDevice or an Android with you just about everywhere you go. Audible provides access to over 100 thousand titles that you can choose from, ranging from great science fiction to business titles. If you want to give Audible a try with your free download, let me suggest having a listen to Atul Gawande's Checklist Manifesto. The title makes Gawande's book seem narrow and focused. It's anything but. Gawande examines skyscraper construction, aircraft operation, and the operating room and shows how people have applied checklists, brief written guides, that walk them through the key steps in a complex procedure to reduce errors and create more consistent results with less effort and frustration. The book is loaded with great suggestions for using checklists in your operation, for yourself and for your employees, and you can get it free. Just go to farmertofarmerpodcast.com slash audible to get your free download of the Checklist Manifesto or any other book from Audible's extensive library. All right, and we're back with Allie and Dan Haney from Shenandoah Seasonal in Virginia. So, Allie, can you tell us a little bit more about how your vegetable side of the operation works? What what kind of a system are you using for production there? Our system for vegetable production is really coming together this season, started last season, um, and we're seeing a lot of the systems come into place this season. Um, we're using uh, a raised bed system. We use uh, a walk-behind tractor, a BCS with a power harrow um, to prep the beds. Bed prep and tractor work is 
almost 100% um, a Dan task. It's one of the ways um, we split responsibilities, where uh, uh, crop planning and seed ordering um, is more in my realm. So Dan isn't a huge book reader, and I am. And so I came across The Market Gardener um, by John Martin Fortier um, probably two years ago now. And the book really personally changed my life. I also went to a workshop and listened to him um, talk about his methods and systems um, you know, after reading the book, which was such an enormous help for me. And I'm a self-proclaimed JM groupie. I'm such a dork. But anyway, um, <laughs> the system has really, I, I just remember sitting in the workshop and being like, it's coming together. This is changing my life because I understand how this should all be systems. If I had done an apprenticeship at, at a some kind of vegetable farm, these are probably things I would have understood from the get-go, but, you know, it just really helped me understand what that we needed certain tools and systems to go forward and be profitable. Um, so we did purchase the BCS last season. The Power Hero was on back order. So we didn't get that until last June. So we were really kind of backlogged with weeds and turning beds over until we got that Power Hero. And then last fall, we really saw it was it was the end of the season. It was November. We were making two thousand dollars per market just on I mean on greens um, because we had the power harrow, cedars, the salad harvester. We just had these systems that we saw come into everything just kind of synchronized, and um, that's carrying over into this season. So we have the thirty thirty inch raised beds with eighteen foot centers and. We're, for the most part, getting into some standard crop rotation, but we've also found that around this time of the season, things start going a little crazy, and so we improvise. So you're doing what I like to call farming JMS style when you're when you're on land that's already in production. How are you bringing land into production? Because you're you said that you're rotating ground that's been in cows and chickens and pasture and thistles breaking some sod and bringing that into your vegetable rotation. What's your process for that? Well, when we're breaking ground, we first try to do it early in the spring or really late in the winter when there isn't a lot of weed pressure, the grass is really low, it's mowed down, and it hasn't really grown too much because the angle of the sun is low. And if you if you do that in time, you don't have to take a a tractor and cut the grass in advance. You just tap in with a rotary plow on the back of the BCS, and it really does a great job of breaking up the soil. It's got different settings for you could technically you can get about eight to twelve inches deep in the soil, um, or you can make it a little bit shallower if you're not going to put root crops there. So we take the rotary plow through, and we initially till up about half an acre at a time. It takes, with the rotary plow, it's pretty slow. You know, you're going about a mile and a half per hour. So compared to a traditional 
three bottom plow, you're taking a long time to really work up the soil, but you don't have to go back and take the the disc disker to it or these things that require you going over three times with the tractor. The rotary plow pretty much pulverizes everything in one go round if you do it late winter, early spring. Now, if you're in the middle of the summer, you decide, hey, I need an extra plot right here, and the grass is two feet tall, that's a different story. You, you do want to go in. Sometimes I'll take a string trimmer or a push mower and cut the grass down, uh, or sometimes I'll leave the sod if I'm in a hurry. And we do have a regular tractor with a six-foot tiller on the back, and if I want to go through and really break down that sod, then I'll, I'll take that through. Um, but, the, again, the rotary plow is such a useful thing. I, the day we got that, it really brought tears to my eyes. It was amazing, um, especially coming from doing most everything for the first two to three years with just a shovel. We were just making raised beds every single day. It seemed it was just a uh, very daunting task to try and produce an acre of vegetables with just prepping all of the land with a shovel or broad fork. It was, it was pretty terrible. <laughs> wow. So the rotary plow, can you tell us a little bit about that tool for, for folks that aren't familiar with it? It's not something that I've ever used or even, even seen in action except on video. So the rotary plow, the way that it works is that it, it's got these four blades on that are kind of at an angle and it, it takes the soil and it kind of throws it to the side. So it constantly is, is chugging along and working into the soil about eight to 12 inches and it throws it all to the side. Whereas a plow, when you, you put your plow marks in, it kind of folds over to the side as you're pulling through the field. This essentially is the same idea, but it's really, it's pulverizing the soil a little bit, well, a lot bit more than a, uh, a standard plow would do. So by the time you work up all of the soil, it, and again, if you do it early in the spring, it's, it's ready to go at that point. Um, you just add your compost, uh, broad fork it in. It, it's, uh, like I said, it's an exceptional tool. Uh, and it, again, it uh, mixes the soil really well. It also creates, you can create raised beds with it. Right, because it's not just like with a, tr- a traditional plow, you're basically creating a plow furrow and that becomes your walking path, right? Correct. Yeah, it, it's like, like I said before, it really tosses the dirt to the side. So you can toss it to the left and then go back and toss on the opposite opposite side of where that bed is, you can toss it uh, to the right, and essentially you can work up a, a raised bed that uh, after you've gone through and just initially plowed it all, it's already loose. It's already got the depth of about eight inches at that point. Then you can go and shape your beds with it, which is really nice. Um, it's also the perfect tool for going through and hilling potatoes, uh, there's, there's a lot of uses for it. It sounds like this is a purchase that, that you guys made that was extremely valuable 
you mentioned earlier that as a result of your experience in Cambodia, that that you've also learned kind of how to scrap things together. How do you guys find the balance between buying, you know, I mean, a, a brand new rotary plow, which are not cheap and and trying to to figure something out with with some tin and duct tape to do the same job? Usually in the past, when we would make a purchase, we made sure that it had at least two uses. So if we were going to say, if we were going to buy this rotary plow attachment on the BCS, we were going to say, okay, we really need something to, to work the soil, break some ground. Um, and then we also needed to do something else. So it also makes these raised beds for us. So it's also a bed shaper. And it's also something we can use to hill our potatoes, our beets, whatever it is that we need to hill. And so that's an example of our purchases in the past. We looked at each purchase that was sizable and said, okay, we can use this for multiple purposes in the past. And that'll create these huge savings in the end. And it will make that... uh, purchase a lot more profitable. Now we're kind of at the point where we have a little bit of money to make expenses. So it's not as big of a deal. Uh, and we just, for, for the rotary file and the BCS altogether, these things came through a loan actually through the BCS company, I believe. Right, Allie? Correct. They, yeah, they provided the financing for the BCS. So it made it possible for us. So the financing actually, did that come through BCS America or was that with your, your local dealer? Our local dealer uh, hooked us up with, uh, they had this um, promotion going on with BCS. Oh, okay, great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I'm just, I'm asking because BCS is a sponsor of the show. And so I'm just, I'm, I'm curious how that, that sounds like something that that people might be interested in in knowing about and being able to use. Right. So uh, we, out of um, Chambersburg, Pennsylvania, Shanks Lawn Equipment. Um, they're about an hour and a half from us. Um, they were really great to work with, and um, I I just called them and they they told me about the various financing that they had for it. So that that was huge for us to be able to to qualify and have the BCS now. And and you guys didn't feel shy about taking on the debt to make that work. I didn't say that. <laughs> Well, (laughs) definitely it's scary um, because I, I, I came on the farm full time in 2014. So prior to that, I had either a full time job or a part time job. So um, two years ago is when we made the leap for both Dan and I to be on the farm full time. So it was it was difficult to to take that on some some debt, but we also felt like we had to, to make our business grow. So tell me a little bit about making that leap. And I, and I suppose at the same time, maybe getting into a little bit of the, of the finances, because I mean, stopping that off farm stream of income is a pretty big deal. Yes. So when we came back from Cambodia, Dan was really the lead at starting the farm. In fact, I was still working in the nonprofit world and, um, you know, didn't, didn't honestly didn't have the intention to be on the farm full time. 
um, I was commuting an hour and a half into a DC suburb and also working the farmer's markets with Dan every weekend and coming home and helping in the field. And it, it was pretty intense I, because my job was also pretty intense. So I started looking at the finances and, and realized that we were living paycheck to paycheck and that I could get a part-time job closer and help more on the farm and still live paycheck to paycheck. So that's, um, that was the first, first leap we made. And then, um, so that income definitely helped sustain, um, farm operations or at least our, our cost of living. Um, we started our farm with about $15,000, really not a lot of money. Um, these loans that we're talking about didn't happen until last winter. So the first two years or so, we really um, scraped by with what I was bringing in from the off-farm job, what the farm was making, um, until some of these loans, we were able to qualify for some of these loans. I was sitting at a farm, farmer's conference in January 2014, and I was listening to a family farm. They were giving a talk, and... I, I just kind of had a, had a revelation that this is what I wanted to do. I wanted it to be my full-time gig and um, just for Dan and I to work together and build this business for it to be our livelihood. And I think four months later, that April of 2014 is when uh, I came on full-time. And that at that point, it really catapulted us because we had we just had more more of a labor force. So we were able to do more. I mean, it's such an interesting balance. I think when, when you're making that transition, because you are, you know, you've got this off farm stream of income, but that comes at a huge opportunity cost. Like you just said, in terms of your time and involvement on the farm, your engagement, even with, with Dan in the business process, much less the, you know, the actual labor of getting the work done. And, what I mean, you talked a little bit about about deciding that that's what you wanted. Were there indicators that you guys had from a financial perspective that said, "Hey, this is this is the right time to make this transition"? I don't think that there was a financial indicator. I think, I mean, obviously, we saw that our market demand was growing and that we were starting to produce a little bit better. So I think we had faith in that. But I there was one, Dan. We, okay. We, um, we were accepted into the Leesburg Farmers Market that uh, season. Oh. And um, this is in Loudoun County, and Loudoun County is um, it's it's a pretty it's a pretty wealthy county. Um, it's a Washington D.C. suburb, and Leesburg is a well-established market. And I think we knew, or we had been accepted to the market. And we knew that in order to produce for that market, we needed me on board. So that gave us some hope that we would be able to make it work financially. But that was, that's the only real, real indicator. I mean, we had seen progress. We had doubled our, our gross income every year for the first two years. So that, that was a nice, it was nice to see that. Um, we felt like we were getting better. We were, very optimistic and hopeful also. Um, 
which I guess goes a long way for us. <laughs> yeah. Well, <laughs> well, and I think, I mean, right there, I think you just, I mean, I think you'd actually just nailed it. I mean, you guys, it sounds like if I was looking from the outside that, that you'd kind of proven your ability to produce. And then you knew that if you could get into a high dollar, high volume market, that you had the production ability to make it all, to, to start actually taking advantage of that. But it was going to require more of you. Exactly. Okay. And how much money are you guys making on the farm? What do, what do your gross sales look like? Last year, we grossed $70,000. And and what are you on track for this year? You mentioned that the farm is continuing to grow very rapidly. This year, uh, our, we are on track to gross $100,000. Although the number flashing in my head is one hundred twenty-five thousand, so I that's I like my goal. That. Yeah, that's <laughs> what right. I, I I kind of just picture that in my head every day, and um, I, I do based on what what we've done so far. That's looking really great. We're we're averaging um, so far this season two thousand to two thousand two hundred dollars per week. And again, it sounds like room to continue to grow the operation, which is a really, I think, a, a, a wonderful thing to have. Absolutely. We've increased our, we have um, three high tunnels, uh, 15 by 96. Um, one is a greenhouse with a, a propane heater. And then we actually also have a, we received an NRCS grant, high tunnel grant, which we put up last October. And unfortunately, it collapsed in a blizzard in February. So um, that's certainly a sad loss, but we do want to continue with our winter production and, and become stronger with that. I'm curious with the loss of the high tunnel. And I know, I think, I think high tunnels in, it's almost easier to do high tunnels in Minnesota than it is to do high tunnels in a place like Virginia, because in Minnesota, we plan on getting walloped with snow. Right. And, and I think in, in Virginia, I mean, you get these weird freak heavy snowstorms that come in that aren't necessarily what you're thinking about on a day-to-day basis in the wintertime. When you lose a tunnel under the NRCS program, what's the, what are the consequences of that? Fortunately for us there, there was no financial consequence. Um, you know, in terms of, we didn't have to, to pay back for it. Um, it's a huge loss for our business and our time setting that thing up. It's, it's really, it's so sad that that happened. We're hoping to be able to use some of the materials, um, especially the, the ground posts are salvageable and the hip boards, the side curtains, and probably the plastic, but the actual arches, they just, there was no way they could have sustained. We had over three feet of snow. And so, like you said, if we're in this, interesting um zone where i mean we haven't had snow like that in what 10 years so um it just our lesson from that our very very hard lesson from that is that the current the current high tunnels we have now they're just um the one hoop um you know about seven feet tall these are really the best things for us they're mobile they're easy they're easy to move and they they can sustain these the snow loads if if it happens again. On that, I'd like to turn to our lightning round. Cool. So, all right. So, Allie, what's your favorite tool on the farm? 
My favorite tool is my uh, four bay precision seeder from Johnny's. It's been life changing for me. So talk to me about how you guys are using that and well, or so talk to me a little bit about what that tool is for folks that aren't familiar with the, the four row precision seeder from, from Johnny's. So that seeder, um, the reason we chose that one over the six bay is just cost. It's, I think it costs about $250. It has, um, it's a wheel. It's, it's a very, it's a, I think from the outside, outside, it looks like an easy tool to use, but you really can become um, pretty skilled at it because there's different hole sizes you can adjust and there's brushes that let out the seeds at different rates. So it's great for us, for our radishes and salad greens. We really do a lot of um, successions of salad greens and, and radishes. Um, so it's just an extremely important tool for us. And this allows you to put those put those seeds or put those rows really close together, right? I think it's two and a quarter inches apart. Yes, um, exactly. It's great for the intensive spacing um, and for the the bed, the standardized beds that we use. Yeah, I know that when we use that four row cedar and and the six row cedar as well, I think they're they're both the same. But anytime really that you're doing those solid seeded beds, weed control just becomes such an issue because it's not like you can get in there with a wheel hoe and do anything about it once you've got a weed problem in there. How are you guys managing the weeds along with that four-row cedar? Well, what we do is we tend to only plan on harvesting from each succession for about two weeks. And historically, with that in mind, we would really get around any of the weed pressure because it seemed like the first two weeks, the salad seeds, they germinate very quickly and then they shade out the weeds or prevent them from growing up. And then about after two weeks, so when you're about to go to your third harvest, you might have to go and harvest by hand at that point. But um, we have kind of set up the system to only harvest from the salad specifically for two weeks, knowing that we're going to harvest it with the salad harvester. Right. The quick cut greens harvester. Which happens to be Dan's favorite tool. Okay. <laughs> so you, there, you just stole my thunder there, Allie. So. Sorry, I did. So, Dan, why don't you tell us a little bit about how that, that quick-cut greens harvester works? So, the greens harvester, it is essentially, it's like this bread knife that is attached to this pivoting arm that's attached to a small basket of sorts that is powered by a cordless hand drill. And so if you have a 30 inch bed, this harvests 15 inches, it's probably 18 inches wide, but you get, as you're going down our really intensive 30 inch raised bed with the salad, it cuts half of the bed at one time. So sometimes for us, if there's, if we've always grown on a slope and um, we will harvest the side that seems like it's growing faster, usually uh, the side that's south facing, yeah. that side's growing faster than the other side because the other side of the bed gets a little bit shaded from those other crops. So 
some weeks when we say we're going to leave some of these crops for the CSA harvest next week, then we'll harvest just one side. We'll go through, you squeeze the trigger on your, your cordless drill, and it, it takes this bread knife and pivots it back and forth, and you can control the speed in which it's cutting. So, and then it has these kind of like a car washer to actually, after it cuts the salad at the base, which is maybe an inch, inch and a half off the ground. You just leave uh, some of the, the new leaves for regrowth so you don't kill the plant. But it'll take these uh, car wash kind of tines that are real soft, they're made out of fabric, and it, it, it uh, forks it or, like, throws it into the basket for you as you're going along. So there's a couple of different mechanical processes going on uh, as you're going through, but I go in with the salad harvester and Allie follows me with her harvesting bin. And every time I get a full load, she's behind me. I drop the salad into her bin and then I keep cutting. And we noticed at the end of last year, we could harvest about $2,000 worth of greens and baby greens in an hour. And it's, Everything, you know, if you do it properly by doing the two-week succession intervals, keeping it weed-free, there's no sorting at that point. Uh, we don't wash our greens hardly anymore unless it's a rainy day. It, it, for us, it creates a better product that's longer-lasting. And since we use row cover to keep the insects off or growing organically, uh, there's no dirt and debris that's caused from heavy storms. Uh, that the rain will really generally splash up a lot of grit and dirt on your crops. So it has really been super beneficial for us to not only follow John Martin's kind of intensive setup, but with those two tools in mind for both planting intensively and then harvesting intensively, it's, uh, it's really been profitable for us. Dan, what's your favorite crop to grow? My, my favorite crop to grow is probably, I would say, salads because we have now the system tools and techniques to grow it, and uh, it's a pretty big moneymaker for us. And we, we've noticed that at our farmer's markets, most of the farms that we have at the farmer's markets that grow vegetables, they are three, months, three weeks ahead of us in terms of their climate. So right now it's summer and these these producers are starting to bring in cucumbers and tomatoes and things that we don't necessarily have yet, but we're capitalizing on still bringing our salad greens and baby greens to market. And, and as we, over time, built up our, our markets, a lot of our clients know us as the greens people. Allie, since since you're really the person that loves the vegetables, what what's your favorite crop to grow? I really love Swiss chard. Um, it's I would I guess I'll call it my spirit vegetable. I just feel like it's <laughs> beautiful, resilient, um, grows all four seasons, and it's something that I before I started farming I had never eaten it before, and it's just. It's just what I love to grow. So beautiful. Is a particular variety that you like? 
Well, I I do purchase majority of my seeds from high mowing seeds, so I just get I I tend to purchase whatever I don't get their mix um, the mixed rainbow chard, but I will buy a little bit of all their types and mix it myself, and that's that's how I like to do the mix. So, Dan, if you could go back in time and tell your beginning farmer self one thing, what would it be? If I could go back in time and change things, I, I would definitely have told myself to start with a, a bit more money than what we started with. Um, to really, you know, that's, that was a challenging thing for us to grow. We would have to take all of our profits and reinvest it. And for the first four years, I never had money to buy clothes or go to the dentist, uh, things like that. And it was really not only risky, but, uh, it was, it was hard for us to, to focus on ourselves and everything was going towards the business. And I feel like if we started with a little bit more safe money, or if we had garnered the interest for, um, some investors on our farm, it would have been a lot smoother sailing starting our business. And Allie, how about you? If you could go back in time and let your beginning farmer self know one thing, what would it be? Well, I definitely agree with Dan, but I would, I would have spent time on some other farms and the farming community is such an open community and um, that I think I would have learned a lot just from a couple conversations or um, even working on a farm at least for a season as opposed to just going out and and doing it. Um, That would be it. Dan, Allie, thank you so much for being part of the Farmer to Farmer podcast today. Thank you so much, Chris. Thanks, Chris. All right. So wrapping things up here, I'll say again that this is episode 73 of the Farmer to Farmer podcast. And you can find the notes for the show at farmer to farmer by looking on the episodes page or just searching for Haney. That's H-A-N-E-Y. I love talking to Allie and Dan. Their grit and determination and continuing evolution as farmers is inspiring to me. And I think it's typical of our local and organic farming movement. I love being able to bring you these stories from beginning farmers like Allie and Dan, from experienced farmers like Janet Charnecki, small farmers like Jen Campbell, and large farmers like Nate Parks. And I've heard again and again that you want me to keep it coming. Please keep your ears on this space because we're getting ready to share some ways that you can help me keep the zerks of the Farmer to Farmer podcast well greased. In the meantime, if you enjoy the podcast, I'll bet you'll like being on my email list, Flying Rutabaga. And you can check that out at farmertofarmerpodcast.com or purplepitchfork.com. Also, please head on over to iTunes, leave us a review if you enjoy the show, or talk to us in the show notes, or tell your friends on Facebook. Your reviews and referrals are the bread and butter of our ability to reach out to sponsors to help make this show work. Finally, thank you so much to everybody who's taken time to submit a guest suggestion. Many of these episodes come directly from your recommendations on the suggestions form on farmertofarmerpodcast.com. Thank you for listening. Be safe out there, and keep the tractor running. (laughs) 